federal unemployment insurance because they're claiming that uh, it's making poor people lazy and they don't want to go to work. Uh, see, they're, they're not focused on human infrastructure and having child care so people can go to work, things like that. They just want to take away $300 a week in federal unemployment insurance to force people to go back to work. They're not saying, oh, the employer should pay more to pay a livable wage. Okay, they're not saying that. At least 21 states dropping $300 a week federal unemployment uh, benefits. This is from May 18, 2021. Uh, now, these 21 states all have Republican governors, and they are set to stop uh, participating in the federal government supplemental unemployment uh, benefits program, which provides an extra $300 a week to the jobless, as many Republican officials are claiming, claiming without evidence, by the way, okay, they're looking at anecdotes, but without evidence. They're claiming the payments disincentivize workers to get back on the job. Now, Missouri, Iowa, Mississippi, and Alaska all plan to drop the benefits on June 12th. This is an example of how elections have consequences, which is the earliest, June 12th is the earliest date uh, states are allowed to be programmed. Now, Indiana, Alabama, West Virginia, Idaho, North Dakota, and Wyoming are all planning to opt out on June 19th. Uh, Texas, Ohio, Georgia, Utah, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and South Dakota will cease payments on June 26th. Montana uh, Governor Greg Gianforte said he would withdraw the he would withdraw the state from the program by June 27th also claiming Montana was being plagued by a labor shortage. Now, Montana will instead offer a one-time $1,200 bonus for uh, returning to work, uh, Governor Gianforte said, with Oklahoma also offering a $1,200 incentive. South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster said uh, his state would end federal benefits at the end of June. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee announced that the, announced the state will stop participating in the federal government's supplemental unemployment benefits program on July 3rd. Okay, this is July 3rd. So th this is one of the powers of a governor. So when I hear people think that you just have to vote for president, it doesn't matter who's in the state legislature, doesn't matter who's governor. That's not true. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties that adopt an interpretation and enforcement at the federal level, state, county, and city level. All this matters. Now, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey said his state will stop paying federal benefits on July 10th. But the state will offer a $2,000 return to work bonus. $2,000 return to work bonus. Now, the $300 a week federal payments, which are a reduced version of the $600 a week in federal unemployment insurance, that was fought for by Democrats, by the way. Okay? That's why you, that's why you had that. That was fought for by Democrats. 
this was earlier in the pandemic. The $300 that you have now, I just want people to understand that $300, that's part of the American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, no, that's, that's from the CARES Act. That's from the CARES Act, $300. Uh, it was $600 a week. It was uh, renegotiated down to $300, okay? Uh, many Democrats wanted more than $300.
The plan offers a tax break for the first $10,200 in unemployment benefits received in 2020. Okay, that's now the tax break for the first $10,200. That's something that Joe Manchin of West Virginia wants. Okay, but the, the Democrats have negotiated uh, to get like $400 in unemployment insurance a week, down from 600 Joe Manchin wanted 300 a week instead of 400 all the, all the poor white people you have in West Virginia, just doesn't make sense. So read this, read this article here. All right, let's go back to the one before it. So, um, now Republican officials have long claimed Federal unemployment benefits are too high. They long claim federal unemployment benefits are too high, and more GOP-led states may soon leave the federal program amid reports of employers having trouble finding workers. Maybe if you hire, maybe if you pay the living wage, maybe you can find more workers. Maybe if you pay the living wage, maybe you can find more workers. And more GOP-led states may soon leave the federal program amid reports of employers having trouble finding workers. Millions of Americans remain unemployed. We're, about, we're, we're down about 8 million jobs from before the pandemic hit us. We're, about, we're still down about 8 million jobs. Millions of Americans remain unemployed, but claims of work shortages appear to be largely anecdotal so far. We have flooded the zone with checks that I'm sure everybody loves to get and also enhance unemployment said uh, Senator uh, Moscow Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky. He said this last week. And he said, what I hear from business people, hospitals, educators, everybody across the state all week is, regretfully, it's actually more lucrative for many Kentuckians and Americans to not work, to, to not work than work. Maybe you should, check, maybe you should raise the, the minimum wage in Kentucky. Maybe if Kentucky didn't have something called right to work, which drives down wages and attacks unions and attacks unions' ability to collect a bargain, maybe you'd have higher wages in Kentucky. Maybe, maybe if you maybe if you didn't tax the maybe if you didn't have the right to work law in Kentucky that was pushed by uh, Americans for Prosperity, which is a uh, nonprofit organization of the Koch brothers. And the Koch brothers are pushing this initiative to have right-to-work states, which drive down wages and weaken unions. Maybe if you ain't had that in Kentucky, and maybe if you raise the minimum wage in Kentucky, right, uh, maybe more people would be anxious to go back to work. But also, maybe people will have a f- trouble finding childcare. So they can go back to work unless you want them to take their children to work with them. Have uh, bring your child to work day like every day. <laughs> Three hundred eighty-seven. Three hundred eighty-seven dollars. That's how much the average American receives from their state and weekly unemployment benefit, uh, weekly unemployment payment. Now I, w- I want people to understand. Uh, all these senators make one hundred seventy-four thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mitch McConnell. Lindsey Graham, uh, 
grandpa, lying ass Ted Cruz. I, I just want people to understand. They, they, they're trying to take away $300 a week in federal unemployment insurance from people. But every last one these senators make $174,000. I just want people to understand that, okay? And the extra three, the extra three hundred dollars a week—that's something like seven dollars fifty cents an hour, what have you. So, let's see. All right. So three hundred eighty-seven dollars. That's how much the average American receives from their state and weekly unemployment payments, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities rises to $687 with the federal boost, okay? The $387 plus uh, uh, the $300 from the federal government. Based on a 40-hour work week, that means the average unemployed American is getting the equivalent of $17.17 an hour, more than twice the federal minimum wage. They're getting $17.17 an hour. But Republicans don't want to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Federal minimum wage is currently at $7.25 an hour. They don't want, the Republicans don't want to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. The $300 in federal unemployment insurance each week, plus $387 that the average American receives as unemployment payments from their state, is $687 a week. That averages out, if you look at a 40-hour work week, $17.17 an hour. Maybe if you raise the minimum wage in these states, especially these Republican states, maybe you focus on raising the federal minimum wage to a living wage, you'd have more people who are willing to go back to work and we're getting coronavirus. At a news conference earlier this month, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said it was, quote-unquote, not clear whether federal unemployment benefits were causing a labor shortage. Because this is just anecdotes. There's no evidence. There's no evidence that people aren't going back to work because they're making more money collecting unemployment insurance. These are just anecdotes that they're just throwing out. But, but we do know in a lot of these states they're not paying a living wage. But in any case, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said that won't be a factor for much longer because he expects the federal government will not extend payments past September. So read, read this article here from uh, Forbes.com, May 17, 2021. At least 21 states dropping $300 a week federal unemployment benefits. They talked about this on uh, the readout with Joanne Reed back on May 13th. Uh, I want to go to this clip here. Now, back back on May 13th, it was 17 states uh, who were going to opt out of the federal unemployment insurance. It's 17. Now it's 21 states. Okay. And 17 uh, states run, well, at the time, 17 states run by governors 
across the country are using April's April April 2021 sluggish jobs report to argue that people don't want to go back to work because they're getting extra money without evidence, without evidence, and are putting an early end to the additional $300 per week being given to unemployed Americans. Okay. Um, let's, let's go to this. have decided to pull back on the enhanced federal contribution um, for unemployment because they say that is hurting people's ability to get uh, workers back to work. Have you considered doing the same? Yeah, no question about it. That's exactly what's happening in the real world. I don't know if the Biden administration understands that, but later today we'll be putting out an announcement that we're not going to be participating in the federal subsidy any longer. 17 states run by Republican governors have decided to put in. Okay, that was dumbass uh, uh, Brian Kemp from the great state of Georgia. This is another example of how elections have consequences. Okay, this is Brian Kemp, who was Secretary of State back in 2018 when he ran for governor against uh, Stacey Abrams. And you had, you had African Americans, some of some African in Georgia that said they weren't going to vote for Stacey Abrams because she didn't have a black agenda, but your dumb ass let Brian Kemp get in office and he has an anti-black agenda. <laughs> you let you let Brian Kemp get in office who has an anti-black agenda and look at what he's doing. He, he, now he's doing this after he signed Senate Bill uh, 202. After he signed Senate Bill 202 to suppress this, this voter suppression <laughs> bill to, to suppress you back then. People didn't want to listen. It's not always about what someone can do for you. It's also understanding how to block and stop what people are trying to do to you. A, a policy or bill doesn't have to say black African Americans are beneficial. And if you understand how many people, how many white people in state legislatures or in the House of Representatives or the Senate got to vote on this stuff, it's better if it doesn't say black African It's better if you can show how it's going to benefit uh, their constituents also because most of the people that got a vote on this are white. That's understanding strategy. That's understanding why most ladies who ran away ran away at nighttime and not in the daytime. I told you before, Georgia is the state that has the largest Confederate monument in the country. Georgia has Stone Mountain. Stone Mountain is the largest Confederate monument in the country. It's a huge mountain that has on the side of it carved into Stone Mountain are the uh, images of General Robert E. Lee, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis. These were all Confederate heroes, traitors to, traitors to the Union. They committed treason against the Union based upon Article 3, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution. They were all slave owners. And uh, Stone Mountain is there right now in Georgia. This is the largest Confederate monument in the country. 
this article from, from SmithsonianMag.com. What will happen to Stone Mountain, America's largest Confederate monument? The Georgia landmark is a testament to the enduring legacy of white supremacy. You think? I've been to Stone Mountain. I've climbed to the top of Stone Mountain. This is, this is what's on the side of Stone Mountain. These three traitors. All of them slave owners also. Jefferson Davis was the, was the first president of the Confederacy. He was from Mississippi. Stone Mountain Confederate Memorial features General Robert E. Lee, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis. And has stirred controversy uh, has stirred up controversy in Georgia for years. This is what's in Georgia right now. And Governor Brian Kemp, Trump-loving Governor Brian Kemp is the governor of Georgia. And look at what he's doing. Elections have consequences. All right, let's go back to, uh, I want to go back to this clip from uh, Read Out with uh, Joanne Lee. Let's go back to this clip. The Biden administration understands that, but later today we'll be putting out an announcement that we're not going to be participating in the federal subsidy any longer. 17 states run by Republican governors have decided to put an early end to the federal unemployment benefit. An extra $300 per week provided by Congress as part of the COVID stimulus plan. The cuts will impact more than 1 million Americans. The governors are using April's sluggish jobs report to argue that people don't want to go back to work because they're getting that extra money. That's Republican code for poor people are lazy. And they have no proof to back that up. In fact, a study showed that when unemployed Americans were getting double that amount early in the pandemic, the benefits did not discourage people from returning to work. The situation is way more complex than Republicans are making it out to be. Not everyone is currently in a position to be able to work. Women and men both left the workforce equally when the pandemic began. But while nearly all fathers returned to work by November, mothers were improvement, almost certainly due to school closures and a shortage in childcare. One year later, two million women are still out of the workforce entirely. And Reuters report that 22% of parents said they were either not working or working less because of disruptions to childcare and in-person schooling. Childcare was already expensive before the pandemic, and for many, it just might not be worth it to work for a minimum wage job and then use that meager paycheck to hand it over to childcare. Take New Hampshire, for example whose Republican governor announced today that the federal unemployment benefits will end early. New Hampshire's minimum wage is $7.25 an hour a pittance. And the average cost of child care for an infant there is more than $1,000 a month, a whopping 92% of what a minimum wage worker would make in a month. New Hampshire's costs are far, by far, the worst of the states getting those benefits. But even in states like Arkansas, with an $11 minimum wage, child care for an infant costs one-third of a monthly salary. That's still a lot when people also have to pay for food and rent and mortgages. And that's just for one kid. President Biden is trying to solve this problem. His American Families Plan, part of his larger infrastructure bill, would cap child care costs at 7% for medium and low-income families. But Republicans are objecting to that plan, saying, no, 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 it does not fit into their limited definition of infrastructure. Republicans are supposed to be the pro-life party, but they consistently balk at policies that would improve people's lives, even when they're paid for by the federal government, like this unemployment benefit is. So Republican governors like Brian Kemp and Christy Noem were turning away money 
that will provide much-needed support for your own constituents, you are tonight's absolute worst. <laughs> All right. So, once again, this is an example of how elections have consequences. We just saw article here from uh, MarketWatch, uh, MarketWatch.com. This is from February 16, 2021. Majority of jobless Americans choose going back to work over receiving the extra $600 unemployment benefit. This is when it was $600. Majority of jobless Americans choose going back to work over receiving the extra $600 unemployment benefit. New research by the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute suggests that supplemental unemployment benefits did not discourage people returning to work. This is February 16, 2021. When jobless Americans began receiving the extra $600 a week in unemployment benefits in April, uh, critics of the program held that in April of 2020, critics of the program held that it would discourage people from returning to work because two-thirds of recipients receive more money from their jobless benefits than they did from their jobs. Once again, isn't that an indication that we need to raise the federal minimum wage if people are getting more from unemployment insurance mm -hmm. than they are from actually working? Isn't that an indication that you need to raise, that you need to pay a living wage? Mm. But in reality, more than half of the jobless workers who receive enhanced benefits from the CARES Act return to work before the benefits expired at the end of July, okay? In reality, in the real world, uh, Governor Brian Kemp, more than half of the jobless workers who receive these enhanced benefits under the American CARES Act return to work before the benefits expired at the end of July, according to research published Thursday, Thursday back in February 2021, by the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. This finding is based on an analysis, an analysis of more than 44 million households with a J.P. Morgan Chase checking account from January 2019 through November 2020. The researchers also found that after the $600 a week uh, enhanced benefit expired in July of 2020, the rate of jobless Americans returning to work did not increase significantly. Okay? The researchers also found that after the $600 a week enhanced benefit expired in uh, July 2020, the uh, rate of jobless Americans returning to work did not increase significantly, and three weeks after the supplemental benefit expired, the rate of people on unemployment returned to July levels. However, without the extra $600 a week benefit, America Americans drew out half of the savings they built up when the $600 was in effect prior to, prior to J.P. Morgan Chase Institute uh, prior. Okay. However, with, without the extra $600 a week benefit, Americans drew out half of the savings they built up when the $600 was in effect. Prior J.P. Morgan Chase Institute research found. 
At that time, households experiencing unemployment also increased spending relative to employed households. Okay, read the rest of this article here um, from MarketWatch.com. A majority of jobless Americans chose going back to work over receiving extra $600 unemployment benefit. This is from February 16, 2021. Then also, uh, look at the article here from uh, the 19th. This is from uh, May 7, controversy over that win and uh, Dina Spirit failed a drug test uh, after the race. And like I said before, Medina Spirit should never be confused with Funky Cold Medina if you look at Spirit. Some people could say Funky Cold Medina is a drug. 
Kentucky Derby was uh, was ran by was won by an African American man named Oliver Lewis uh, back in May seventeenth, eighteen seventy five. May seventeenth, eighteen seventy five. African American jockeys used to dominate horse races. Uh, Fifteen uh, uh, the first Kentucky Derby. Thirteen of the fifteen jockeys were African American, and our dominance in horse racing also goes back to slavery. There's a good article from uh, uh, WAV Channel 3 out of uh, Louisville, Kentucky. WAV Channel 3 out of Louisville, Kentucky. Black Jockeys and the, and the Kentucky Derby, a history of race and racism. Black Jockeys and the Kentucky Derby, a history of race and racism. Now, I've done an entire lecture uh, dealing with History of African American jockeys in uh, horse racing. Uh, that lecture is available at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, when black men dominated horse racing. When black men dominated the horse racing. And it's also in the uh, six DVD bundle pack or six digital download bundle pack called uh, uh, Black Migration 1619 to 2019. Black Migration 1619 to 2019. But if we look very quickly here, had uh, information dealing with African-American jockeys. So people may ask the question, well, why uh, African-American jockeys? Why do they dominate horse races, right? So African-American jockey dominance in the world of horse racing uh, dates back to slavery. Dates back to slavery. And uh, in the world of horse African-American jockey dominance in the world of racing is a history nearly forgotten today. Their participation dates back to colonial times when the British brought their love of horse racing to the new world. Founding fathers like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson frequented the racetracks. And when President Andrew Jackson moved into the White House in 1829, he brought along his best thoroughbred and his uh, black jockey. Because racing was tremendously popular in the South, it is not surprising that the first black jockeys were slaves. And if you, you, if you could make your slave owner uh, money through racing or boxing or cockfighting like uh, Chicken George and Roots, right, you could have privileges. You can also have the opportunity to earn money as well. So Chicken George um, was able to buy his freedom from the money he won uh, with uh, raising the roosters and cockfighting, things like this. All right. So here's Oliver Lewis. Uh, Oliver Lewis was 19 year, years old when he first won the Kentucky Derby. Uh, the Kentucky Derby is the first race of the Triple Crown. The Triple Crown consists of three races, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, which is interesting, the Preakness just ran, uh, the Preakness and uh, the Belmont Stakes. Okay, so the odds were good that the African American jockeys would win the prestigious contest, uh, the first Kentucky Derby in 1875, when Oliver Lewis became the first uh, winner of the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> Oliver Lewis won uh, the very first Kentucky Derby uh, aboard a horse named Ariston. In addition to this famous first, Oliver Lewis became an analyzer of racing data. His work became very influential in the forming of modern 
race charges. Uh, you can read more information at uh, derbymuseum.org, derbymuseum.org, okay? So this is Oliver Lewis. Uh, I want to go to this clip here from uh, WABE Channel 3 out of uh, WABE Channel 3 out of uh, Kentucky. Let's go to the story here. This is what black jockeys at the Kentucky Churchill Downs, uh, history is filled with the sound of horses galloping around the track during the Kentucky Derby. The black jockeys that once rode those horses and dominated uh, the sport of horse racing have uh, faded into the pages of history. And if you look at uh, some more information here in the uh, lecture that I did, First Kentucky Derby ran May 17, 1875. Thirteen of the uh, 15 jockeys, 13 of the 15 jockeys uh, were African American and among and African Americans were among the first 28 Derby winners. Uh, I'm sorry, among the first 28 Derby winners, 15 were African American. Among the, the first 28 Kentucky Derby winning winners, 15 were African American. African-American jockeys excelled in the sport in the late 1800s, but by 1921, they had disappeared from the Kentucky Derby racetrack and would not return until Marlon St. Julian rode in the Kentucky Derby in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to go uh, to this clip here from our WABE Channel 3. Kentucky Derby Station will be bringing a live coverage from the track starting Friday. Is your Kentucky Derby Station will be bringing a live coverage from the track starting Friday right here on Wavesley News as well as Saturday. You know we don't have spectators, but there's going to be lots of action still, and we will bring bringing that all to you. Well, we often don't hear their names, but black jockeys have played a significant role in horse racing. That often are little to nothing about. And Wave 3 News reporter Tawana Andrew takes a look into how black jockeys were dealing with racism and segregation at and beyond track while trying to make the industry. Joe history is filled with the sounds of horses galloping around the track during the Kentucky Derby. The black jockeys who have mostly posted and dominated the sport have faded into the pages of history. On May 17, 1875, 10 years after the Civil War ended, 15 jockeys raced in the inaugural Kentucky Derby. 13 were black men. Uh, Wayne Jockey, born Air Scotty, Oliver Lewis, is also an African American. 15 of the first 28 runnings of the Derby, African American jockeys entered races. American slavery led to generations of black men growing up around horses and horse races. Training horses, caring for the horses uh, that were riding the horses. So all that kind of flowed together as to how the African American connection to those horses and what was needed in that space for America actually started. Decades after Abraham Lincoln emancipated slaves across the country, 
black people still dominated the sport. That all began to change as racism and segregation came further into the forefront of American society. As race maybe becomes more codified, more of a business, there was some intentional methods on behalf of those in charge of racing to not license African-American jockeys or get fewer jockeys licenses to African-American jockeys. Eventually, things became physical. Uh, probably late 19th century, early 20th century, Jimmy Winkfield, a chief African-American jockey in the Kentucky Derby, was riding Harlem race course outside of Chicago, and his white counterparts really tried to run him and his horse up against the rail, which they'll kind of call rough riding. By 1904, black riders were banned from many racetracks across the country, including Churchill Downs. He actually left the country in the early 1900s due to a lot of the Jim Crow and segregation that we discussed. He had a prominent career in Russia. Jimmy Winkfield was one of the last black jockeys to ride in the Derby. In fact, he won back-to-back Kentucky Derby riders in 
15 DVD bundle pack of Black History Michael Lim Hotel Black History Month 15 DVD bundle packs. There's 15 of my lectures. So below that, we have the uh, Black Migration 16-19-2019 uh, bundle. And the one, yeah, where Black Men Dominated Horse Racing is part of that six DVD bundle pack. So we have it in uh, DVD format and digital download format at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. That bundle is on sale and it's $50. All right, because uh, we have to get out of here. Hey, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show. Also at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, be sure to register for my online course. I teach on Saturdays as well. And we're here six days a week. Uh, <laughs> well, today, welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Super Station, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, May 16th, 2021, and we are live. We have a jam packed show uh, for you today, you know, Friday. Uh, May 14th, I was on Roller Martin Unfiltered. I'm usually a panelist on each Friday, so we had a short panel discussion, a shorter panel discussion with Roller was on location in Texas. So we have an excerpt of what happened there. But also, uh, you know, this past week, I did not get a chance to talk about uh, May 13th. May 13th, 1846, uh, the U.S. declared war against Mexico, and this began the Mexican-American War, okay, which started, uh, uh, the U.S. declared a uh, war on Mexico May 13th, 1846, and this was over a territorial dispute. You know, uh, the U.S. wanted to expand westward, and that territory was owned by uh, Mexico, all right? So we're going to, you know, so all this history is connected. You've heard me talk about this before. All this history is connected. And uh, we're going to talk uh, some about slavery and the Mexican-American War of 1846. Slavery and the Mexican-American War of 1846. It's a really, really deep history here. And this has a lot to do with the way things are today and some of the feelings that uh, Mexicans have against the U.S. Uh, because the Mexican-American War, it lasted two years, 1846 to 1848. And is also going to uh, bring about the expansion of slavery uh, westward uh, in this country. And it's also going to bring about the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which went farther than the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. And then, then we know that you're going to have a civil war in 1861, but uh, you have the U.S. wanted to you have Europeans in general want to take over the entire North American continent. And you're going to, uh, the, the Mexican-American War is going to end with what's known as the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1846. And this, in, in this treaty, the U.S. is going to get the territory that becomes California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada. Okay, they get all of this out of uh, the Treaty of uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo. So, 
it's a, it's a really, really deep uh, history there, so we'll talk some about that. And then uh, on Friday's show, Friday, uh, May 14th, I talked about a story that was that Mother Jones wrote. And uh, they talked, uh, I saw a number of different articles dealing with this. But this deals with uh, a leaked video from a uh, dark money group. Uh, this is uh, Heritage, Act, Heritage Action which is a sister organization to the Heritage Foundation. But uh, uh, they leaked video from a dark money group uh, where the CEO, uh, Jessica Anderson, bragged about writing GOP voter suppression bills, bragged about writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. All right, so we know that these bills are in 47 states, um, the 47 uh, state legislatures across the country that are being pushed by Republicans. Uh, approximately 361 bills, almost 400 bills, as of uh, March 24th. The uh, Brennan Center for Justice has been tracking uh, these various voter restriction bills. Uh, and a lot of people have been asking, well, how were they able to coordinate all of this so quickly? Okay. Well, you had uh, an organization that is financing this uh, uh, heritage action. Uh, they're financing this, and they are crafting... Uh, these policies and uh, pressuring uh, the governors to hurry up and sign them quickly once they pass the state legislature. This is what happened in Georgia with uh, Governor Brian Kemp. As you've heard me talk about before on this show, uh, Brian Kemp signed uh, SB 202 uh, within an hour of it passing the uh, state legislature, the Georgia state legislature. So we'll talk some about this. Now, on the last word on MSNBC on Friday, May, uh, May 14th, uh, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson was uh, interviewed by Ali Belshi. Ali Belshi was sitting there for Lawrence O'Donnell on the last word, and they talked about this uh, revelation uh, that came out. Okay, so we'll discuss some of that as well. We'll let you hear what Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson had to say. Then... Um, on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday, one of the things we talked about was uh, the hearing that took place in the House of Representatives. It was, uh, and this is this is dealing with the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection. And you have some Republicans who have amnesia and uh, don't want to, and now they're saying the insurrection, it wasn't an insurrection, the insurrection didn't take place. Uh, you have... Uh, Representative uh, uh, Adam, yeah, Representative uh, Andrew Clyde uh, out of uh, Georgia, who uh, said basically, if you did not see the video, if you did not know the video was from January 6th, you would think it was a, no a normal tourist visit, a normal tourist <laughs> visit. Okay, even though 140 officers were uh, injured and one died from injuries uh, that he suffered from the insurrection. So we talked about this. of uh, what we discussed, uh, multiple Republican members of Congress on Wednesday, um, that was Wednesday, uh, May 12th, offered a false retelling of the devastating events that occurred during the Capitol riot, with one of them calling the entire event a bold-faced lie, quote-unquote a bold-faced lie, that more closely resembled a normal tourist visit than a deadly attack. During a House wow. Oversight Committee hearing on the January 6th 
uh, riot, Representative Andrew Klein, Republican of Georgia, said the House floor was not breached and that the supporters of uh, former President uh, Trader-in-Chief Benedict Donald, Donald Trump, yeah. who stormed the Capitol, behaved, quote-unquote, in an orderly fashion, in an orderly fashion. Now, he's correct. They did not, the insurrections did not breach the House floor, but they did breach the Senate floor. Okay, so you have a bunch of revisionist history that's, that's taking place. So we'll discuss that. And then also, 17 GOP governors are punishing the poor and putting an early end to the additional $300 per week being given to uh, unemployed uh, Americans, all right? Uh, instead of them calling for raising the uh, minimum wage, raising the federal minimum wage, uh, they want to hurry up and, and open everything back up, push people back to work, but they don't want to address the fact that there's a lack of uh, child care and a lack of affordable child care. They don't want to look at various reasons why people may not be able to go back to work because they just want to take away the uh, uh, extra $300 a week in uh, uh, federal unemployment insurance. So uh, Joy Reid on MSNBC has something to say about that as well, so we'll discuss that also. Now, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or a woman's thoughts, you control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events, history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, africanhistorynetwork.com, africanhistorynetwork.com, to uh, sign up for our email newsletter there as well. Okay? All right. Uh, if you'd like to stop information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, or at our website, africanhistorynetwork.com, right on the homepage. If you do it through Cash App, be sure to type in dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W, it'll say Michael, and it'll show my picture there also. All right, you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturday. Saturday, 12 noon, Standard Time. We had a great class uh, yesterday. Uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. We deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We deal with ancient Africa, ancient Kemet, Egypt, uh, Nubia, Ta-Nehisi, uh, Ethiopia, etc., we deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors and uh, what the Moors took into Europe, pieces from ancient Africa, the Nile Valley region of Africa. They take this into Europe, and this brings Europe out of the Dark Ages. All right, so we do the classes live, and they're all recorded. They're all archived. So you can go back and watch them over and over again, even if you can't uh, join us live in class, all right? Uh, it's regularly $130 on sale, $80. Just posted the link here. You can also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and register there. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. You can 
watch the content from uh, uh, last Saturday's class. Next class is Saturday, May 22nd, 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. All right. Uh, so let's jump into this uh, reported break. Uh, let's jump into this story here dealing with the uh, Mexican-American War. Okay? And the Mexican-American War, this is taking place uh, during slavery here in the U.S. This is before the Civil War starts in 1861. Uh, the Mexican-American War begins May 13, 1846. Okay? So uh, this past week, May 13th, was the anniversary of the, of, of the beginning of the Mexican-American War and the U.S. declaring war on Mexico. Uh, this is before the Republican Party was even founded. The Republican Party was not founded until 1854. This is 1846, okay? So you have the Whig Party, W-H-I-G, the Whig Party. This is going to die out in the 1850s. And you have the Democratic Party at this time. So uh, the Mexican-American War in uh, History.com has uh, some good information on this. And we're, we're going to go to clip one here in just a second, Jason, before the break. Uh, the Mexican-American War fought the first U.S. armed conflict, chiefly fought on foreign soil, chiefly fought on foreign soil. It pitted a politically divided and militarily unprepared Mexico against the expansionist-minded administration of U.S. President James K. Polk. Now, you don't hear a lot about James K. Polk, okay, but his involvement in the Mexican-American War, uh, you know, really cements him in history. Uh, and, and President Polk believed the United States had a manifest destiny, manifest destiny. And this dealt with uh, the uh, this dealt with westward expansion of the U.S. And, and basically you had uh, Europeans that wanted to take over the entire North American continent, okay, and take it over from, I mean, they already stole a lot of the land from Native Americans and African people who were already here. And, and, and then at the same time, uh, uh, Texas wins its independence from Mexico in 1836. Now, we know Mexico had abolished slavery under uh, the second president of Mexico, Vicente Guerrero, and, uh, and this is about 1828, 1829, and Vicente Guerrero was, uh, a, uh, he was a former slave, okay? Vicente Guerrero was, was uh, of African descent, and he's the second president of Mexico. And when he becomes president, he abolishes slavery in Mexico. All right, so this is this is a deep, deep history. Um, I want to go to this clip here, uh, we'll squeeze this in before the break. This is from uh, PBS, uh, American Experience, how the Mexican-American War, how the Mexican-American War affected slavery. Okay, let's go to this clip, Jason. In the spring of 1846. We'll start a new segment we're almost out of time in this segment so we'll continue in the next segment thank you for listening how's everybody we're going to continue with the african history network it's michael m hotep he's teaching about the Mexican-American War in 1846. The United States went to war with Mexico, hoping to gain vast territories in the Southwest. Abolitionists bitterly opposed the war as an attempt to expand slave territory. 
but they were swept away by a national tide of patriotic enthusiasm. The Mexican War ultimately increases the size of the United States by virtually 100%. It almost doubles the size. And the big question is, what are we going to do with all this land acquired from Mexico? Slave owners want it all to be slave territory. Uh, Anti-slavery northerners all wanted it to be free territory. The Mexican War unshook slavery. It just took it out of its show. All those efforts to contain this issue couldn't work anymore. While southerners saw the expansion of slave territory as a guarantee that the institution would continue to thrive, northerners viewed those plans as a conspiracy to build a true slave empire. Northerners become convinced that Southerners are hell-bent on moving slavery to every part of the country. And now you have this political fight going on over what's going to happen with that land. And that becomes very, very divisive very quickly. Through 1847 and 1848, the question of the new territories festered. And the answer to that question lay the country's destiny. In the fall of 1850, the country stepped back from the brink when Congress adopted what became known as the Great Compromise. In return for allowing California to join the Union as a free state, Southerners were granted the prospect of someday forming slave states in Utah and New Mexico. But for Northerners, the most galling provision in the Compromise was the Fugitive Slave Law. The law stipulated that any citizen, north or south, could be rounded up and forced to catch a suspected runaway. These are slave laws. Legitimate the kid. Hold it right there. We're gonna uh, we're gonna start this from the beginning on the other side of the break. So the uh, Mexican American War of eighteen forty six to eighteen forty eight leads to the compromise of eighteen fifty. And in the Compromise of 1850 is the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which uh, intensifies um, the abolitionist movement, okay? So we'll deal with this on the other side of the break. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation and Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation and Future Radio. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, May 26, 2021. And we are live. Now, remember, we are here six days a week. We're here Monday through Friday, uh, 11 p.m. to 12 midnight Eastern Standard Time. And we're here Sundays, um, 11, uh, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sundays. So I've been doing Sundays on 9 p.m. on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFBF for five years. It's five years this past April. Okay. And um, we started doing six days a week, uh, October uh, 12th, 2020. It was on um, Indigenous Peoples Day, also known as Columbus Day. All right, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a quick question or comment, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a quick question or comment, uh, we're talking about uh, May 13th was the anniversary of uh, the beginning of the Mexican-American War and the U.S. declaring war against Mexico, and this is over a territorial dispute the U.S. wants a westward expansion. This is uh, territory uh, that's uh, owned by Mexico. 
we also know there was uh, also a dispute over Texas as well. Okay, and Texas won his, won his independence from Mexico in 1836. Um, right before the break, we were, I shared a clip from uh, PBS, uh, American Experience, how the Mexican-American War affected slavery. We're going to go back to that clip in just a minute here, Jalen. Um, so the, the Mexican-American War of 1846-1848 affected efforts to abolish slavery. While driven by economic ambition and a sense that the United States was destined to span the entire continent, because these Europeans wanted to take over the entire North American continent. It was not, and now this is after the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, which doubles the, the territory of the U.S. The U.S. gets 828,000 square miles of land in the uh, uh, Louisiana Purchase of 1803. That, that comes about because the, the, the Haitians beat the hell out, out of the French during the Haitian Revolution of 1791 to uh, 1803. And the, the, uh, the French and Napoleon, they're, they're trying to raise money. So they sell um, uh, all this land in Louisiana Purchase. They sell it for about $5 million to the U.S. So you have one thief selling the land to another thief. This is what, it, this is what, this is what you have. You have one thief selling the land to another thief. Um, isn't it illegal to receive stolen goods? Isn't that illegal to receive stolen goods? I'm just curious. I mean, I, I, that's that's what I that's what I see on Starsky and Hutch, right? That's what that's what, that's what I see on TV. Isn't it illegal to receive stolen goods? So you have so you have the French who steal the land from Native Americans, and there's African people here as well. They're going to sell the land to these other thieves called the United States of America in the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. So the Louisiana Purchase doubles the territory of the U.S., and the U.S. is going to carve about 15 states out of this land. Then we see the uh, Mexican-American War. The U.S. is going to get, uh, at the end of the war, the, the, through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848, which is what ends the Mexican-American War, the U.S. is going to get the uh, territories that are now California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada. All right, and, and the Mexico is going to lose about a third of their territory. So the uh, while driven by economic ambitions and a sense that the United States was destined to span the entire continent, the Mexican-American War also raised the issue of how acquisition of such large territory would affect the balance between slaveholding states and free states, between slaveholding states and free states. Now, the congressional uh, response was the Great Compromise of 1850, talked about briefly before the break. Now, only uh, the Compromise of 1850 not only allowed for the possible creation of new slaveholding states, but also placed legal demands upon Northerners to aid in the recapture of fugitive slaves. So because of the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, this is going to cause more runaway slaves to go into Canada because now, because of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and Article 4, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution laid the foundation for the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 and the one in 1850. But, be, but, but now, because uh, uh, people were, were going into, people could go into this northern territory, that's free territory, 
recapture these runaway slaves and take them back into um, um, slave-holding territory, okay? So this is going to cause more runaway slaves to now go into Canada. All right, uh, I want to go back to this uh, clip here. Uh, this is from uh, PBS, uh, Public Broadcast Assistant, uh, American Experience, uh, how the Mexican-American War affected uh, slavery. Let's go back to this clip, Jay. In the spring of the United States went to war with Mexico, hoping to gain vast territories in the Southwest. Abolitionists bitterly opposed the war as an attempt to expand slave territory, but they were swept away by a national tide of patriotic enthusiasm. The Mexican War ultimately increases the size of the United States by virtually 100% and almost doubles the size. And the big question is, what are we going to do with all this land acquired from Mexico? Slave owners want it all to be slave territory. Uh, Anti-slavery northerners all wanted it to be free territory. The Mexican War unshook slavery. It just took it out of its shell. All those efforts to contain this issue wouldn't work anymore. While Southerners saw the expansion of slave territory as a guarantee that the institution would continue to thrive, Northerners saw those plans as a conspiracy to build a true slave empire. Northerners become convinced that Southerners are hell-bent on moving slavery to every part of the country. And now you have this political fight going on over what's going to happen with that land. And that becomes very, very divisive very quickly. Through 1847 and 1848, the question of the new territories festered. And the answer to that question lay the country's destiny. So this ties, 
um, all this history together. The abolitionist movement, the war, uh, the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848. Now, just incidentally, right, when I was in high school, I didn't like none of this stuff. Just, just to be honest with you, I didn't do well in history in high school. <laughs> I didn't like any of this stuff. I found it boring, okay? I started studying history in, in college because uh, uh, I was studying African history, and uh, we had the, uh, the Afrocentric movement, and we had conscious hip-hop and things like this. I'm listening to Malcolm X and, and Mr. Farrakhan and different things like this, right? So in, in, in high school, I didn't like history, okay? So they were teaching it the wrong way. I'm serious. They were teaching it the wrong way. All right, so the Compromise of 1850, we'll go to the phone lines in just a minute, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a, a question or comment, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. Uh, if you saw the movie Harriet, the movie Harriet about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, they discussed the, uh, the, the, the Compromise of 1850 is a backdrop uh, of uh, the movie, okay? And this intensified the abolitionist movement, but it also then required white people in the North, they could be deputized to help go round up recapture runaway slaves from the South who go into the North, even though the Northern states, most of these are free states at this time, majority of them are free states at this time, they could be deputized to go round up uh, runaway slaves and take them back into Southern territory. So this is going to cause more runaway slaves to then go into Canada. All right, the, um, let's see here. Let me go back to this. Uh, History.com has a really good article dealing with this uh, Mexican-American War, Mexican-American War from History.com. History.com is the official website of uh, the History Channel. So the, uh, I want to look at this right quick. We'll go to the phone lines. The Mexican-American Mexican War, 1846 to 1848, marked the first U.S. armed conflict chiefly fought on foreign soil. It pitted a politically divided and militarily unprepared uh, Mexico against the expansionist-minded administration of U.S. President James K. Polk, who believed uh, the United States had a manifest destiny, a manifest destiny. We'll talk about manifest destiny in uh, just a minute here. Uh, a manifest destiny to spread across the continent to the Pacific Ocean. Now, a, a, a border skirt along the Rio Grande uh, started off the fighting and was followed by a series of U.S. victories. When the dust cleared, Mexico had lost about one-third of its territory, including nearly all of present-day California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. Okay, and, and the U.S. gets all this land, um, also Colorado. Uh, the U.S. gets all this land in what's known as the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848. Okay, let's go to the uh, phone lines. Let's go to Sally Line 1. Hey, Sally, uh, welcome to the African History Network show. Uh, thanks for holding. Tell us where you're calling from, Sally. I'm calling from another state. You're you, you, you you calling from where? Sunday. Calling from where? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You say you're calling from where? Can you hear me? I can Ohio. Hear you. You're calling from Ohio. Okay. You're Ohio. our neighbors. You're our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Ohio, yeah. Where but are that's, I'm not calling a 
I'm not just calling about that. I'm calling about that Mexican-American war that was fought. And I don't know if you remember it or not, but the uh, America lost. Five guys, remember those five guys, you might know their names, they were uh, hunters and they were singers and that kind of thing, and they just knew they were going to win the war. But they lost it. So what happened, those states of Texas and Arizona, whatever that they uh, know that we know of, they had to be paid for by the America. So America lost the war, and they had to pay for that land, which we now know as the uh, Arizona and, you know, Texas and a little bit of California. But all that land, they lost and had to pay for it. And the five guys whom I can't think of their name now, but they're older men. Of course, they're in the industry. You go down to Texas, they have their name everywhere, but they lost the war themselves. Who, who lost the war? America lost to the Mexicans. America paid for that, that uh, land here in America. They lost the war. So they had to pay for those, what we now know as states. Okay. All right. Thanks for calling. Keep listening. You're welcome. Yep. Keep listening. Okay. Uh, let's continue. Uh, Mexico lost the Mexican-American War, just so we're clear on this. Uh, we'll, we'll continue this discussion. Okay, uh, I want to uh, I want to continue here. Uh, let's go back to this article here, Mexican-American War. And I, I've got some other articles. We'll, we'll, we'll delve into this a little bit, and we'll talk about the Compromise of 1850 as well. Uh, when we look at the cause of the Me- Mexican-American War, this ties into Manifest Destiny. Texas gained its independence. Mexico in 1836. Initially, the uh, United States declined to incorporate uh, Texas into the Union, largely because northern political interests were against the addition of a new slave state because Texas was a slaveholding state. When you look at the when you look at the history of Texas, well, let me continue. The Mexican government was also encouraging border raids and warning that any attempt to annex uh, annex uh, Texas would lead to war. So we know Texas is going to is going to win its independence from uh, Mexico, uh, and and Mexico had already abolished slavery. Okay, that's about 1828, 1829, with Vicente Guerrero, uh, who was a former slave. He was of African descent. Vicente Guerrero becomes the second president of Mexico. When you look at the Texas Rangers, I've done an entire presentation dealing with this a couple of years ago. When you look at the Texas Rangers, not the baseball team, but the Texas Rangers, the state police, law enforcement, you know, like Walker, Texas Ranger, the TV show with Chuck Norris, and then the old radio show Tales of the Texas Rangers with uh, Joe McCray as Ranger, Jace Pearson. I'm an old radio show fan, so I've listened to thousands of old radio shows. Uh, the Texas Rangers get their start as bounty hunters hired by slave owners in southern states of the U.S. to go into Texas and, I'm sorry, to go into Mexico and retrieve runaway slaves. uh, You have uh, uh, slave owners like in Texas. They're going to hire the Texas Rangers, who start out as bounty hunters, to go into Mexico, because Mexico is free territory, go into Mexico to retrieve these runaway slaves. There There wasn't just a underground railroad going north. 
okay, it, which starts about 1830, 1831. It wasn't just an underground railroad going north. There wasn't just uh, runaway slaves running into Florida up until about 1821 because Florida was free territory. Florida was Spanish territory. So you have a lot of them going into Florida. This is why uh, the U.S. Uh, wanted uh, Florida um, as uh, as uh, U.S. territory because they were losing a lot of you know slaves who were running to Florida. You also have an underground railroad going into Mexico, and is estimated it's, it's known as the Southern Underground Railroad, and it's estimated that uh, between five thousand to ten thousand um, runaway slaves run into uh, Mexico as well. There's, a, there's an article from uh, history.com that I talked about this uh, two, I think two or three years ago, uh, dealing with the Southern uh, Underground Railroad. Okay. And I'm going to see if I can pull this up here. The Southern Underground Railroad. And this is, yeah, uh, October 24, 2018. This article came out from um, history.com. So I talked about it when it came out. The little-known underground railroad that ran south to Mexico. The little-known the little known underground railroad that ran south into Mexico. Now, incidentally, when you look at the founding of Los Angeles, you know, like half the people that founded Los Angeles were of African descent also. Los Angeles, California, half the people that founded Los Angeles, California were of African descent. But the little-known underground railroad that ran south to Mexico Unlike the northern free states, Mexico did not agree to return people who had fled slavery, okay? So uh, Mexico was a safe haven as well. This is another reason why. <laughs> this is another reason why the U.S. hated Mexico, okay? <laughs> this is another reason why. They don't, they don't have, you know, they don't have a problem going to Acapulco and things like this, right? But uh, this is another reason why uh, the U.S. hated Mexico. All right, now. Uh, the Underground Railroad ran south as well as north for enslaved people in Texas, for enslaved people in Texas. Uh, refuge in Canada uh, must have seen, seemed impossibly far away. Fortunately, slavery was illegal in Mexico. Researchers estimate 5,000 to 10,000 people escaped uh, from bondage into Mexico, says Maria Hammack, H-A-M-M-A-C-K who was writing her dissertation about uh, this topic at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, but she thinks the actual number could be even, even higher. Uh, Maria Hammack said, these were clandestine routes, and if you got caught, you would be killed and lynched. So most people did not leave a lot of records. Um, there's some evidence that uh, uh, Tejanos, or Mexicans in Texas, acted as conductors on the southern route of the Underground Railroad by helping uh, people get to Mexico. In addition, Maria Hammock has also identified a black woman and two white men who helped enslaved workers escape and try to find a home uh, for them in Mexico. Okay, uh, now this right here is a picture of a slave auction in Austin, Texas. Uh, now, Mexico abolished slavery in 1829, as we talked about, when Texas was still part of the country. Uh, in, in prompting, uh, in, in, in part prompting white slave-holding immigrants to fight for independence in the Texas Revolution. Now, once they formed the Republic of Texas in 1836, they made slavery legal again, 
and it continued legal when Texas joined the U.S. as a state in 1845. Okay, so Texas is going to join the yeah, Texas joins the uh, the U.S. as a state uh, the uh, year before the um, Mexican American War starts. Okay, uh, enslaved people in Texas were aware that there was a country to the south where they could find different levels of freedom. Though indentured debt servitude existed in Mexico, it was not the same as chattel slavery. So chattel slavery, if you, if you watch the uh, extensive interview I did with Dr. Daryl Scott, Dr. Daryl Scott is a history professor at Howard University, and uh, we, uh, we did an interview dealing with uh, the, the myth that the 13th Amendment re-enslaved um, uh, former slaves, re-enslaved African Americans, and led to mass incarceration, all this nonsense, the 13th Amendment based upon uh, what's known as the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, okay? It did not re-enslave re African-Americans, did not lead to uh, mass incarceration, and the 13th Amendment of 1865, um, it's adopted in uh, December of 1865. Mass incarceration doesn't begin until the early 1970s, basically with um, Richard Nixon declaring his war on drugs June 17, 1971, okay? It took 106 years for mass incarceration to start. Okay, so they did it. That's just um, that's nonsense. Okay, watch the. I, I did a two-hour interview with uh, Dr. Daryl Scott. We go through history and break this down and deal with uh, uh, population, the the, uh, the uh, prison populations throughout the years, all the types of things like this. Okay, uh, so you can watch that at our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I M H O T E P. All right, uh, we'll go to the phone lines in just a minute here. Let me go back to this article quickly. So a lot of people don't know about the Southern Underground Railroad in, in, uh, in Mexico. Uh, enslaved people in Texas were aware that there was a country to the south where they could find different levels of freedom. Though indentured servitude existed in Mexico, it was not the same as chattel slavery. So chattel slavery, you're enslaved for perpetuity, and your children who are born while you are enslaved, they're slaves as well, Okay. Um, now, Maria Hammock has discovered one runaway uh, slave named Tom who had been enslaved by Sam Houston. Uh, Sam Houston was a president of the Republic of Texas uh, who had fought in the Texas Revolution. Now, once Tom got across the border, the Mexican border, he joined the Mexican military that Sam Houston had fought against. Now, fugitive, uh, fugitive enslaved uh, people, these fugitive enslaved Africans, got to Mexico in many different ways. Some, some went on foot, some went on foot, while others rode horses or snuck aboard ferries bound for Mexican ports. Stories spread about enslaved people who crossed the Rio Grande uh, River, dividing Texas from uh, Mexico by uh, floating on bales of cotton, floating on bales of cotton, okay? Uh, and several Texas newspapers reported in July 1863 that three enslaved people had escaped this way, floating on bales of cotton. Okay, so isn't it interesting that um, they had us uh, picking cotton, and a small number of us are going to use cotton to uh, escape, okay? <laughs> We're going to use cotton to escape. The other thing is, so when you study this history, you know, we were trying to find all different types of ways uh, to escape, okay, to, to escape slavery. One of the ways that we did it, and one of the reasons why they made it illegal 
for uh, for Africans to enslaved uh, Africans to learn to read and write is because one of the things that we did when we learned to read and write is we wrote our own freedom papers and ran away. <laughs> and when you're dealing with uh, Patty Rollers and you're dealing with the, uh, the white men who are patrolling the, the roads to uh, looking for runaway slaves and things like this, there's a good chance that they were illiterate. So you could give them any piece of paper and say, these are, these are my freedom papers. There's a good chance they were illiterate. Most of them couldn't read or write. So... You know, one of the things that we, one of the things that we did when we learned to read and write, and usually we had to learn to read and write covertly, except for um, Virginia. In Virginia, up until 1831, it was legal for slaves to read and write and to learn to read and write. Up until 1830, up, up until 1831. You know what's significant about 1831? The Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831. Because Nat Turner was literate. He could read and write. After the Nat Turner Rebellion, after they called uh, the, 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 the people, the, the men with uh, Nat Turner, after he after Nat Turner was called and executed, uh, the state legislature of Virginia passed a law that made it illegal to teach slaves to read and write. It made it illegal for them to be able to, to read and write because they realized, oh, okay, uh, he was literate. And see, Nat Turner could read the Bible, and he was using the Bible as a, as a, as a, a weapon for liberation and teaching enslaved Africans that they, that they were not supposed to be slaves, all right? So they made that, they, they said, no, we, we, can't, we can't have this, all right? So, <laughs> um, the, the, the Nat Turner Rebellion is, is, is very, very interesting. Okay, so you're going to have uh, uh, at least a, a small number of uh, enslaved Africans floating, floating uh, into Mexico and Bell the continent. And several Texas newspapers reported in July 1863 that three enslaved uh, African people had escaped this way, floating on bales of cotton. Now, even if this wasn't logistically possible, the imagery of floating with freedom on a symbol of slavery was strong. <laughs> so read the rest of this article here from History.com, official website of the History Channel. This deals with the little-known underground railroad that ran south into uh, Mexico, okay, the little-known underground railroad that ran south into Mexico. This is written by Becky Little. It's from October 24, 2018, updated January 29th, uh, 2021. All right, let's go, uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Let's go back to the phone lines. Let's go to Theo, line one. Theo, welcome to the African History Network. So tell us where you're calling from, Theo. This is Theo Broughton from Hood Research. That's right. I come here, Lisa. Okay. Happy Sunday to you. Yeah, and I listen to you all the time. Lisa, okay. I have three questions. Okay. One, when the Africans escaped, uh, did you have information that uh, they went to Veracruz? Because um, the darker complexion uh, Mexicans seem to uh, be in that area, uh, Veracruz. And also, um, John Horst is a person that uh, Dr. Claude Anderson talked about. Mm-hmm. He said he escaped from Mexico and he was never uh, recovered, never found. Yeah. Or, you know, killed. Yeah, John Horst in, in the Seminole yeah. Indian Wars. Yeah. John Horst in the Seminole, in Seminole mm-hmm. Indian Wars, yes. Uh huh. And then the last question has to do with, uh, I think you pronounce her name, Salafia 
California is named Queen after Khalifa. an African woman. Queen Khalifa. And there's a picture. Queen Khalifa. There's a picture of her. Huh? Queen Khalifa. Are you saying? Khalifa. Khalifa. There's a picture of her in um, Sacramento, the capital of uh, California. So they uh, don't seem to have a problem identifying her, whereas the uh, races in this country don't want us to know any of that. Queen Khalifa, I've done research with Queen Khalifa. Most of the research I've done on her is that she was a mythological queen. Uh, so there may be, there could be a relationship. The word, I'm, I'm looking for some definitive information. The word California, uh -huh. uh, some people believe the word California is derived from her her name, Khalifa. That's, 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 that's possible. Right. That's possible. Uh, but most of the information I've seen dealing with Queen Khalifa is that she was a mythological queen as opposed to okay. uh, uh, somebody who actually lived. But, you know, I'm still looking for yeah. more definitive information on that. Hmm. Well, we need to find out what that picture is that's in the uh, capital of California, Sacramento. Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. All right, thanks. Thank All you. Right, thanks, Paul Theo. That's uh, right, Africa is going into Veracruz, Mexico. Uh, I'm not exactly sure on that. Now, we do know that also that Mexico was Spanish territory. The Spaniards are taking Africans into Mexico and enslaving them. Okay, we know this as well. Um, so that's, I'm not specifically sure about Veracruz, Mexico, but we do know there was a population of Africans in uh, Mexico for a number of different reasons, okay? a number of different reasons. And we know the Africans were in, in this land, and they, the Africans were in North America going back tens of thousands of years ago as well. Uh, this is something that Dr. David M. Hotel talks about uh, in his book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. The First Americans Were Africans, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence, and he deals with the African presence in um, the uh, territory we call South Carolina going back at least 51,700 years ago. These were the Khoisan. Uh, who are the ancestors that I knew in the Trois, have the oldest DNA on the planet. They go all around the world. They're all throughout this land. Um, so they were here even before Native Americans came into existence. Uh, we're we're going to get Dr. David M. Hotel back on the show also. Okay, so uh, I think we're coming up here on the break. Uh, so very quickly, and we'll continue this on the other side of the break as well. Spring. We're, we're going to continue this uh, as well on the other side of the break. Uh, let's uh, so, at, 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 when we look at, uh, let me pick this up here. All right. So, uh, let me pick up where we left off here. All right. So, uh, so Texas gained its independence from Mexico in 1836. Initially, the United States declined to incorporate it into the Union largely because uh, northern political interests were, uh, largely because northern political interests were, again, the addition of a new slave state. Were against the addition of a new slave state. Now, can you hear me okay, uh, Jalen? Can you hear me okay? You said my audio is going in and out. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, the Mexican government was also encouraging border raids and warning that any attempt at annexation of uh, Texas would lead to war. We're going to continue this on the other side of the break. We're talking about the top of the line. This is very different also. And then we'll get to the 
Kelly Show with Fifth Avenue. That was her right hand man, Ian Street Nation Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network Show right here on the African AM Superstation of Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, uh, May 16, 2021. And we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a quick question or comment, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a quick question or comment. Uh, so in the first hour, we were talking about uh, May 13th was the anniversary of the beginning of the uh, Mexican-American War. U.S. declared war on Mexico. May 13th, 1846. Now, I'm going to go back to clip one. Uh, Jalen is with me over here, so cue that up, please. Um, so May 13th was the anniversary of this, and we know the Mexican-American War, uh, the U.S. wins the war. Um, Mexico's unprepared uh, for the war, and the U.S. is going to end up getting the territory that um, uh, today makes up uh, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, California, on Nevada, okay? Uh, this comes about because of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ends the uh, Mexican-American War. And this is going to give the U.S. more land to uh, also uh, have uh, slavery as well, okay? Even though you have uh, a balance between slaveholding states and free states. Uh, but this is going to give the U.S. Uh, more land have uh, slavery on, but this is also going to lead to what's known as the uh, Compromise of uh, 1850, Compromise of 1850, and this leads to, the Compromise of 1850 leads to what's known as the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which intensifies, um, it, it intensifies uh, slavery, but what it does is it uh, makes it more dangerous for runaway slaves in northern states who ran away from the south and uh, ran away into northern states. And they're going to, uh, more of them are going to end up having to go into Canada to uh, escape uh, the U.S., okay? If you saw the movie Harriet, the movie Harriet about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, um, they discussed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, okay? Because that is uh, that was depicted in the movie, okay, and the uh, the fallout from it, and a lot of the abolitionists, you know, basically most of the abolitionists felt betrayed uh, because of this uh, Fugitive Slave Act, also. All right, so we were discussing that right before the break, and then also uh, the second hour, uh, I'll share an excerpt from Roland Martin and Filter from Friday, May 14th, when I was a panelist. Also, on my Friday show, we talked about uh, leaked video from uh, Heritage Action, a, uh, which is the sister organization to the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing organization. But leaked video uh, uh, reveals a dark money group bragging about writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. We're going to discuss that as well on MSNBC on Friday on The Last Word. Uh, with Lawrence O'Donnell, uh, Michigan State Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, 
was interviewed by Hallie Belshi to uh, discuss this new development also. So we'll talk about that as well. All right, uh, I want to go back here to the story here dealing with the uh, Mexican-American War of uh, 1846 to 1848. Okay, I want to go back to this article here from uh, History.com. History.com is the uh, official website of the History Channel. They have a lot of really good articles there at History.com. So, uh, Texas gained its independence from Mexico in 1836. Initially, the United States declined to incorporate Texas into the Union, largely because northern political interests were against the addition of a new slave state, like you know, a lot of abolitionists, things like this. They were against the addition of a, of a new slave-holding state. Um, the Mexican government was also encouraging border raids and warning that any attempt at annexation uh, would lead to war. Now, nonetheless, annexation procedures were quickly initiated after the 1848 election of uh, James Polk as president, who campaigned that Texas should be re-annexed and that the Oregon Territory should be reoccupied. Uh, James Polk also had his eyes on California, New Mexico, and the rest of what is today the U.S. Southwest, the U.S. Southwest. When his offer to purchase those lands were rejected, uh, he instigated a fight. When his offer to purchase those lands was rejected, he instigated a fight by moving troops into a disputed zone between the Rio Grande and uh, uh, Nueces uh, uh, River and the Nueces River that both countries had previously recognized as part of the Mexican state of Coyahuila. Uh, uh, so this is a territory that's taking place. The U.S. wants to, the Europeans basically want to take over the entire North American continent, okay? And you have this whole notion of what's known as manifest destiny, manifest destiny, okay? Now, I want to uh, reference some information on manifest destiny, then we're going to go back to clip one. Uh, this is from... 10-minute uh, guide to U.S. history from Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica. It gives you a good, good overview of U.S. history, and it goes chronologically. 10-minute uh, U.S. guide to U.S. history. Now, it's going to take you longer than 10 minutes to read it, but it's a, it gives you a good chronology and a good basic understanding of U.S. history. On page 64, we talk about manifest destiny. And that term is first used by John L. O'Sullivan. John L. O'Sullivan, the editor of a magazine that served as an organ for the Democratic Party and of a partisan newspaper. He first wrote about Manifest Destiny in 1845. Now, this is the year before the Mexican-American War starts. But at the time, he did not think the words were profound. Rather than being coined, rather than the term Manifest Destiny being coined, the phrase was buried halfway through the third paragraph of a long essay in, July, in the July-August issue of the United States Magazine and Democratic Review on the necessity of uh, annexing Texas and the inevitability of American expansion. Now, John L. O'Sullivan was protesting European meddling in American affairs, especially by France and England, which he said were acting for the avowed object of thwarting our policy 
and hampering our power, limiting our greatness and checking the fulfillment and checking the fulfillment of our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. So basically, you have black people in the U.S. think think they're ordained by God to take over the, the, the rest of this land here in, in North America. All right. Uh, I want to go back to uh, clip one here. This is from uh, the American Experience from uh, PBS, Public Broadcasting System, okay, PBS. And this clip here is how the Mexican-American War affected slavery, how the Mexican-American War affected slavery. Mexican, Mexican-American War was 1846 to 1848. It started May 13, 1848, and uh, it affected efforts to abolish slavery. While driven by economic ambitions and a sense that the United States was, quote-unquote, destined to span the entire continent because of manifest destiny, the the, uh, Mexican-American War also raised the issue of how acquisition of such a large territory, how acquisition of such a large territory would affect the balance between slaveholding states and free states. The congressional response was the Great Compromise of 1850. And the, the Compromise of 1850 not only allowed for the possible creation of new slaveholding states, but also placed legal demands upon northerners in free states to aid in the recapture of fugitive slaves. And this is going to cause more runaway slaves to then go into Canada. Let's go to uh, clip one, Jay. In the spring of 1846, the United States went to war with Mexico hoping to gain vast territories in the Southwest. Abolitionists bitterly opposed the war as an attempt to expand slave territory, but they were swept away by a national tide of patriotic enthusiasm. The Mexican War ultimately increases the size of the United States by virtually 100%, almost doubles the size. And the big question is, what are we going to do with all this land acquired from Mexico? Slave owners want it all to be slave territory. Uh, Anti-slavery northerners all want it to be free territory. The Mexican War unshook slavery. It just took it out of its shell. All those efforts to contain this issue couldn't work anymore. While Southerners saw the expansion of slave territory as a guarantee that the institution would continue to thrive, Northerners viewed those plans as a conspiracy to build a true slave empire. Northerners become convinced that Southerners are hell-bent on moving slavery to every part of the country. And now you have this political fight going on over what could happen with that land. And that becomes very, very divisive very quickly. Through 1847 and 1848, the question of the new territories festered. And the answer to that question lay the country's destiny. In the fall of 1850, the country stepped back from the brink when Congress adopted what became known as the Great Compromise. In return for allowing California to join the Union as a free state, Southerners were granted the prospect of someday forming slave states 
in Utah and New Mexico. But for Northerners, the most galling provision in the Compromise was the Fugitive Slave Law. The law stipulated that any citizen, North or South, could be rounded up and forced to catch a suspected runaway. Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 virtually legitimates the kidnapping of free blacks. It means that a Southerner can hunt down any black in free soil and say, you're my slave. And most uh, significantly in one sense, any white can be deputized at any moment, day or night, and is required to help round up the suspected fugitive slave. When the compromise was finally sealed in late September, abolitionists were horrified. Twenty had yielded not emancipation, but a million more slaves, and a political agreement to preserve the institution in the United States forever. The petitions, the campaigns, the rallies, the marches, the meetings and resolutions and fundraisers, the mobs, the beatings, all of the sacrifices had been suddenly dealt away by a handful of men in Washington. Okay. Uh, that's from the American Experience from uh, PBS Public Broadcasting System. Uh, you can find that at pbs.org. All right, now... Um, we're going to talk about the Compromise of 1850 in just a minute. Uh, Juneteenth is coming up. I will be speaking at the Juneteenth um, event in Atlanta at the Bob Johnson show. Um, with not Bob Johnson from BET, but Bob Johnson, who uh, organizes the Juneteenth event. So I, I'll be down there uh, in Atlanta. i got to look at the exact date. But also, if you want me to do a presentation uh, dealing with uh, Black Wall Street, because the 100th anniversary of the uh, race massacre in uh, North Tulsa, Black Wall Street, is coming up uh, May 31st and January and June 1st. Uh, if you want me to do a presentation on Black Wall Street or uh, Juneteenth and the history of Juneteenth, uh, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, uh, ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com and it can be a virtual presentation also okay uh, and we'll make that happen alright because I, I've done lectures on both of them Juneteenth is a fascinating fascinating history and then that ties into the great migration in 1915 and 1970 also alright and also you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays we have a new section to start up on Saturdays ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Mahapra Understand the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. There were thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. And we also deal with the um, ancient African presence in this land we call the United States of America and in the Americas going back tens of thousands of years as well. We meet on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we do the class live. All the sessions are archived, so you can go back and watch them over and over again. You can watch them on demand or you can watch us live. And uh, it's a nine-week uh, online course. I do it, we do it Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Next class is Saturday, May 22nd. I just posted the link here or visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can register there. Uh, class is uh, regularly $130 on sale, $80. And you'll still have access to the course content uh, even after the class is over with. All right. 
Uh, I want to go back to this article here dealing with uh, the Mexican, Mexican-American War, then we'll talk about the Compromise of uh, 1850. People want to say Compromise of 1877. That's, that, that's what ended Reconstruction, the Compromise of 1877. This is another Compromise, Compromise of uh, 1850. Now, when we look at the beginning of the Mexican-American War, uh, on April 25th, 1846, uh, a Mexican cavalry attacked a group of U.S. soldiers in the disputed zone under the command of General Zachary Taylor, who's going to become president also, uh, under the command of General Zachary Taylor, killing about a dozen of them. Now, they then laid siege to an American fort along the Rio Grande. Uh, Zachary Taylor uh, called in reinforcements, and with the help of superior rifles and artillery, was able to defeat the uh, Mexicans at uh, the battles of uh, uh, Palo Alto and uh, Resaca del, uh, de la Palma. Now, following those battles, uh, President James Polk told the U.S. Congress that the cup of forbearance, the cup of forbearance, has been exhausted even before Mexico passed the boundaries of the United States and uh, invaded our territory and shed American blood upon American soil, okay? Following those battles, President James Polk uh, told the U.S. Congress that the the cup of forbearance has been exhausted even before Mexico passed the boundary of the United States, invaded our territory, and shed American blood upon American soil, end quote. Now, two days later, on May 13th, 1846, May 13, 1846, um, Congress declared war on Mexico despite opposition from some northern lawmakers. No official declaration of war ever came from Mexico. Okay. Now, at the time, uh, so we have the U.S. Army advancing into Mexico. At the time, only about 75,000 Mexican citizens lived north of the Rio Grande. As a result, U.S. forces led by Colonel Stephen W. Kearney and uh, uh, Commodore Robert F. Stockton were able to conquer those lands with minimal resistance. Uh, Zachary Taylor, General Zachary Taylor, likewise had little trouble advancing, and and he captured uh, Monterey in September of 1846. With the losses adding up, Mexico turned to old standby General Antonio uh, Lopez de Santa Ana, okay, Santa Ana, uh, the charismatic strongman who had been living in exile in Cuba. Okay, and when you deal with uh, 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 the, the Battle of the Alamo and all this, you can read, read about Santa Ana as well. Now, Santa Ana convinced uh, President James Polk that, that if allowed to return to Mexico, if allowed to return to Mexico, he would uh, end the war on terms favorable to the United States. But when uh, Santa Ana arrived, he immediately double-crossed President James Polk by taking control of the Mexican army and leading it into battle. At the Battle of Buena uh, Buena Vista in February 1847, uh, Santa Ana suffered heavy casualties and was forced to withdraw. Despite the loss, he assumed the Mexican presidency uh, the following month, okay, in, in March of 1847. Uh, 
we'll continue this on the other side of the break. We'll get to these other topics. We'll also deal with the compromise of 1850 as well, which included the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 19 a.m. The Superstation and Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 19 a.m. The Superstation and Future Radio. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Monday, May 16, 2021. And we're alive. Hope everybody's doing well. Call the number 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call number if you have a quick question or comment. Um, and during the break, let's see, some people said they need me to post information again for the online course. So uh, it's also on our, we're going to post this link here. You can register there. It's also uh, at our website, African. Click here to listen to audio podcasts of all these shows. I just uploaded some audio podcasts today. You can click here to read articles I've written. This is an uh, episode of our show from uh, March 15, 2021, the day after Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion performed at the Grammys. And we dealt with uh, that performance of WAP and Negative Corporate Control Hip Hop and all this nonsense. Um, and the information's here. Okay, next class is uh, May 22nd. Click right here to register. Takes you to the next page. And click here to enroll. As soon as you enroll, you can start watching the classes. Okay. All right. So I want to, uh, we're going to go back and talking about the Mexican-American War of 1846 and how this uh, impacted slavery and the abolitionist movement as well. Okay. So we look at this article once again from uh, history.com. Um, this is dealing with uh, the Mexican-American War. Now, with losses adding up, Mexico turned to old standby General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. I've heard uh, Dr. Claude Anderson talk about Santa Ana a lot. Uh, Dr. Claude Anderson is one of my teachers, so hey, we need to get him uh, on the show sometime soon. Uh, with losses adding up, Mexico turned to old standby General Antonio Lopez de, de Santa Ana, the charismatic strongman who had been living in exile in Cuba. Okay, now Santa Ana convinced uh, President James Polk that if allowed to return to Mexico, he would end the war on terms favorable to the United States. But when he arrived, he immediately double-crossed President James Polk by taking control of the uh, Mexican army and leading it into battle. At the Battle of Buena, Buena Vista in February 1847, uh, Santa Ana suffered heavy casualties and was forced to withdraw. Despite the loss, he assumed the Mexican presidency the following month. Now, uh, meanwhile, U.S. troops led by General Winifield Scott landed in Veracruz, Veracruz, Mexico, and took over the city. They then began marching toward Mexico City, essentially following the same route that Hernan Cortez followed when he invaded the Aztec Empire. Okay, because keep in mind, Mexico was conquered by the Spanish. Okay, this is why the dominant language in Mexico is Spanish. Even though there are about 68 languages spoken, it's still indigenous languages spoken in Mexico. But Mexico was conquered by the Spanish. Now, the Mexicans resisted uh, Cerro Gordo and elsewhere, uh, and elsewhere, but were bested each time. In September 1847, General Winterfield Scott successfully laid siege to Mexico City's um, Chapo. Uh, Chapultepec Castle 
During that clash, a group of military school cadets, the so-called Ninos and Heroes, purportedly committed suicide rather than surrender. Now, what ends the what ends the um, Mexican-American War? It's the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of uh, 1848. Okay, so guerrilla attacks against U.S. supply lines continued, but for all intents and purposes, the war had ended. Santa Ana resigned, and the United States waited for a new government capable of negotiations to form. Finally, on February 2nd, 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, February 2nd, 1848, establishing the Rio Grande and not the Nueces River as the U.S.-Mexican border. Okay? Now, under the treaty, Mexico also recognized the U.S. annexation of Texas. Okay, So Texas becomes part of uh, the Union. Uh, uh, Mexico recognizes the U.S. annexation of Texas and agreed to sell California and the rest of its territory north of the Rio Grande for $15 million plus the assumption of certain damages claims. Now, this is going to reduce the territory of Mexico by one-third. Okay? Mexico loses about one-third of its territory. A few days before the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, gold is discovered in California. And we know that you're going to then have a gold rush in California in 1849, which is why the football teams in San Francisco are called the 49ers, because of the gold rush of 1849 in California. And you know, California used to be Mexican territory. Okay, this is why the San Francisco 49ers are called the 49ers, because of the gold rush of 1849 in California. Now, uh, okay, so one of the consequences of the Mexican-American War is also the uh, Compromise of 1850. Compromise of 1850. Read this article here, Mexican-American War, Compromise of 1850. All right, I, I want to go to, uh, we're going to go to clip, we're going to go to clip three, uh, Jalen, uh, dealing with the Compromise of 1850. Let's go to this, Jalen. Hi, my name is Matthew Pitt. And here are a few things you need to know to sound smart about the Compromise of 1850. In 1850, things are way more complicated than before. This is the aftermath of the Mexican War, the acquisition of territory in the West, the era of great sectional strife. Right after the gold rush in California of 1849, there's an awful lot of pressure over what to do about admitting a state in the West that doesn't have a history of slavery and might alter the sectional balance slave and free states in the U.S. Senate. And in January of 1850, a senator named Henry Clay, who's famous as a compromiser in American history, he offered a package of proposals to try to adjust sectional debate between the country over this issue. And the debate in the Senate was fierce and intense, some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. And they turned over the architecture, the engineering of this compromise package to Stephen Douglas, a younger senator from Illinois, a Democrat. And Douglas that the only way to get enough support for all of the different elements of the compromise is to break it apart and treat it separately. When it achieved final form as a series of separate bills in the fall of 1860, there were only five bills. One was about the admission of California as a state, a free state. One was about the organization of the Southwest Territories, in Mexico and Utah, without regard to slavery. One was about the adjustment of the border with Texas and New Mexico. One was 
was about the elimination of the slave trade in the District of Columbia. And the fifth and final bill, and most important for Southerners, a tougher federal fugitive slave law. Afterwards, enough people were relieved that they felt like they had achieved a kind of compromise. Most historians realized it was a shaky one at best. And even though it appeared for a couple of years that it would succeed, very quickly the fabric of this so-called compromise fell apart. Pause right there, Jay. All right, so that is um, some background information on the Compromise of 1850. We look at this piece here from History.com uh, on the Compromise of 1850. There's also uh, some good information on the Mexican-American War at Britannica.com. I just want to kind of get to that information. Um, the Britannica.com official website of the Encyclopedia Britannica, because I looked at uh, their information as well. Um, I think we'll share a little bit of this information that ties into how um, the, the Mexican-American War ties into slavery as well. But uh, the Compromise of 1850. Uh, the Compromise of 1850 was made up of uh, five bills that attempted to resolve disputes over slavery in new territories added to the United States in the wake of the Mexican-American War of 1846. So historical events don't happen in a vacuum. They are the culmination of a sequence of uh, uh, smaller events. And as a, one of my teachers, Professor Jane, uh, Professor uh, Kabahai Wapakamane says, um, to understand the existence of something, you must first understand the pre-existence of existence. To understand the existence of something, you must first understand the pre-existence of existence. So he says that it, it, it's not important to know necessarily the date that something happened, but to understand the sequence. Okay, now I'm a, I'm a, a date person. I'm a, 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 I want to know the date, the year, things like this, but the most important thing is to understand the chronology and understand cause and effect and how these different events, the sequence of them, leads to other events taking place. All right, now, you have, uh, so the Compromise of 1850 was made up of five bills that attempted to resolve disputes over slavery in new territories added to the United States in the wake of the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848. It admitted California as a free state it left Utah, and so the Compromise of 1850, admitted California as a free state to the Union. It left Utah and New Mexico to decide for themselves whether to be a slave-holding state or a free state. Defined, uh, it, it defined a new Texas-New Mexico boundary, and it made it easier for slave owners to recover runaway slaves. It made it easier for slave owners to recover runaway slaves under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The Compromise of 1850 was the mastermind of Whig Party Senator Henry Clay. Now, the Whig Party was founded in 1834. They're going to die out by the 1850s, okay? Um, and at this time, 1850, the Republican Party does not exist. The Republican Party comes into existence in 1854 as a result of the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act of Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854 dealt with uh, the U.S. leaving it up to the inhabitants of uh, westward states. Uh, those going into westward states is, is leaving it, the, the U.S. is not going to dictate to the inhabitants of these westward states whether they should have slavery or not. It's going to leave it up to them. That's the Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854, and you have abolitionist movements. Um, intensifying because of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Then in 1852, Harriet, Harriet Beecher Stowe 
writes her novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which really exposes America to the, to the horrors of slavery. And it sells 300,000 copies this first year out and becomes an international bestseller. Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, the essential character of, the, of Uncle Tom is based upon a runaway slave named Josiah Henson. Josiah Henson is a runaway slave from Maryland who uh, runs away with his family on the Underground Railroad. They go up north. They eventually go going to Canada. He becomes a, a Methodist minister and, and he works on the Underground Railroad, becomes an educator, okay? Josiah Henson. Uh, Josiah Henson writes his autobiography. Harriet Beecher Stowe reads his autobiography and then creates this fictional character of Uncle Tom uh, based upon uh, uh, Josiah Henson. So in the, in the actual story, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uncle Tom was the slave who refused to beat black women, who would take uh, cotton out of his sack, put it into the sack of other slaves who could not meet their daily quota. Okay, and uh, uh, the, the villain is uh, Simon Legree, the slave owner, and the, uh, the slave that runs behind Simon Legree is named Sambo. Okay, so Uncle Tom was actually a good guy in the in the in the a fictitious story of Uncle Tom's Cabin. His, his, uh, the, the name Uncle Tom somehow gets associated with somebody being uh, an African-American being servile and, and, and uh, obedient uh, to uh, white people, things like this. It may have something to do with the, it, in about 1912, there was a uh, short film called Uncle Tom's Cabin that depicted a... Uh, uh, a slave named Uncle Tom is being servile and obedient to white people, things like that. And so that that may be why people get this confused about Uncle Tom. Um, but uh, the Uncle Tom and Uncle Tom's cabin is not the um, uh, is not the personification of the Uncle Tom that people think of when they use that uh, term to derogatorily uh, refer to African Americans who are subservient to Europe. Okay, so, um, so research uh, Josiah Henson. There's an episode of uh, the Jeffersons where uh, Louise's cousin, I think it was, who's a butler, uh, schools George on the term Uncle Tom. Okay, he was played by the same actor who played Fred C. Davis on uh, The Alderman on Good Times. Okay, and he was also, he portrayed uh, um, Fred's, Cousin Grady on Sanford Son as well. Um, uh, uh, when um, when Fred's uh, when um, Grady marries this woman and her daughter's name is Betty Jean, who's overweight, and uh, Betty Jean was left a dowry by her father. And uh, Fred wants Lamont to marry Betty Jean so he can get this money. Okay, so the the uh, the man who portrayed um, Grady as uh, Fred's cousin, um, he was also Fred C. Davis, the alderman on Good Times, and he was uh, Louise Jefferson's cousin, who was a butler on the TV show The Jeffersons, and he. He has access to the man he's the white man he's a butler for has a library in his home, so he reads books and he studies history. So he learns about um, Josiah Henson. So they talk about this on uh, 
with Jefferson. All right. So back to the compromise of 1850. Is everybody okay? That's a lot of information. We're going to take a quick break right here and come back in another segment. Everybody okay? Um, so, uh, read this article here, Compromise of 1850 from uh, History.com. All right, now, uh, there's a piece from Britannica.com dealing with uh, the Mexican-American War as well. And it talks about the Compromise of 1850 as well. And, and I think we have this here. Anyway, uh, the status of slavery in the newly acquired land was eventually settled by the Compromise of 1850, but only after the nation had come perilously close to civil war. When the Civil War came in 1861, many of the most noteworthy generals on both sides had profited from their battle experience in the Mexican-American War, including Confederate Generals Robert E. Lee, uh, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, James Longstreet, George Pickett, Albert Sidney Johnston, uh, Louis Armistead and PGT Beauregard, as well as Union Generals Ulysses S. Grant, who later called the Mexican-American War one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation, uh, George Gordon Meade, George H. Thomas, and Joseph Hooker. In Mexico, the war discredited the conservatives, but left a stunned and despondent country. It also reinforced the worst stereotypes each country held about uh, each other. Normalization of relations after the war proceeded slowly. Okay? Alright. Uh, so you can check out information on the Mexican-American War at Britannica.com as well. I, I want to go to this next story here, and uh, we're going to go to um, we're going to go to clip four. Uh, Jay, we'll go to clip four. So, uh, there was a story that came out on Thursday, May 13th, and this dealt with the uh, right-wing organization uh, Heritage Action, Heritage Action for America, Heritage Action for America. Uh, Mother Jones broke this story. We talked about this on our on our Friday show. You're going to hear a lot more about this. This ties into the voter suppression bills uh, that are in uh, 47 state legislatures. But leaked video, Dark Money Group brags about uh, writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. Okay, um, Je uh, Jessica Anderson, the uh, executive director of the uh, Heritage Action for America organization, said we did it quickly and we did it quietly. We did it quickly and we did it quietly. So what happened was Mother Jones acquired this video that... Uh, this is from a uh, speech that she gave to uh, their supporters. And uh, in a private meeting in April of 2021 with uh, big money donors, let me scroll down a little bit, with big money donors, um, the head of a top conservative group boasted that her outfit, her organization, had crafted the new 
voter suppression law in Georgia and was doing the same thing with similar uh, bills for Republican state legislatures uh, across the country. Uh, quote, in some cases, we actually draft them for them. In some cases, we actually draft them for them, she said. Or we have a sentinel on our behalf give them the model legislation so it has the grassroots uh, from the bottom up top five. So it has the grassroots from the bottom up top five. So the, the Georgia legislation had eight key provisions that the Heritage Action uh, for America uh, uh, organization recommended, Jessica Anderson uh, said. And the Heritage Action for America is a sister organization of the Heritage Foundation. She told foundation donors uh, at an April 21st gathering in Tucson, Arizona, in a recording obtained by the Watchdog Group documented, documented and it was shared with Mother Jones. Now, these provisions uh, included policies severely restricting uh, mail ballot drop boxes, preventing election officials from sending absentee uh, ballot request forms to voters, making it easier for partisan workers to monitor the, the polls, the voting polls, preventing the collection of mail ballots, and restricting the ability of counties to accept donations from nonprofit non groups seeking to aid in uh, election administration, all right? Uh, I, I want to go to this uh, clip here. This is from uh, All In with Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes is speaking with Ari Berman of Mother Jones, um, and, 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 and Ari Berman broke this story. Uh, Ari Berman has the byline on the story from uh, Mother Jones. Ari Berman and Nick uh, Sergi. Uh, leaked video shows right-wing group bragging about drafting GOP anti-voter bills. Okay, let's go to the uh, clip for this. In Texas, the state Senate is considering a bill that would, surprise, surprise, make it much harder to vote in the next election. As it's written right now, the bill would limit polling places and early voting, allow partisan poll watchers to videotape voters, which sounds awful. It's one of hundreds of such bills, mostly sponsored by Republicans, introduced in state legislatures across the country. Voting restrictions have already passed in 11 states under Republican control. Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Montana, Utah, and Wyoming. Many of the bills sound so strikingly similar, it's been pretty clear they weren't born in the organic laboratories of democracy. Tonight, we have a better idea of where the language in these bills is coming from. Mother Jones obtained leaked video of a private meeting between the Heritage Foundation and donors in Arizona last month. In it, Jessica Anderson, the executive director of a Heritage Sister Organization, appears to basically brag about helping write these voter restriction bills and give them a grassroots Live. We're working with these state legislators to make sure they have all of the information they need to draft the bills. In some cases, we actually draft them for them. Or we have a sentinel on our behalf, gives them the model legislation, so it has that grassroots, you know, from the bottom up uh, type of vibe. <laughs> we have a sentinel give it to them so it has that grassroots vibe. After a comment by Mother Jones, Jessica Anderson responded, and I'll read the whole thing here. We are proud of our work at the national level in states across this country to promote common sense reforms that make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. We've been transparent about our plans and public with our policy recommendations, and we won't be intimidated by the left smear campaign and cancel culture. Don't worry. 
Father Jones. We'll see exclusive story today and he joins me now. All right, give us context. What's the event? Who is Jessica Anderson and what is she describing in the video you obtained? Hey, Chris. Well, thank you for having me back. So Jessica Anderson is executive director of Heritage Action for America, which is a sister organization of the Heritage Foundation. She is at an event on April 22nd in Arizona for their top donors. And she is going through and talking about how they are writing what she calls model legislation restricting voting rights all across the country. And Heritage is literally writing these bills for Republican state legislators in Texas, in Arizona, in Georgia, in Florida. And that's why we've seen so many bills suppressing the right to vote in such a short period of time that are all basically exactly the same. It's not a coincidence that's happening. Heritage is literally coordinating this effort and bragging about it at the donor meeting. Yeah, in fact, she, she talks about it. I mean, the, the, the Iowa thing is interesting. We did cover it on the show, by the way, and, and it was one of the first. Um, she says, we sort of did it, and no one noticed, and we were kind of laughing to ourselves like we got away with one, more or less. Um, here she is talking about pressuring Governor Kemp in Georgia to not lose reserve and to make sure to bulldoze through. Take a listen. I was able to sit down with Governor Kemp three days before he signed the election package in Georgia, and I had one message for him. Do not wait to sign that bill. If you wait even an hour, you will look weak. This bill needs to be signed immediately. Jessica Anderson's background, was she a Trump administration official, Yeah, she was a Trump administration official. I think what's so revealing about that is Heritage, from the very beginning, coordinated the entire campaign to pass voter suppression in Georgia. They helped write the legislation, they lobbied for the legislation, and then once the legislation passed, they said to Brian Kemp, you have to sign it immediately. And that's what he did. He signed it within an hour. They gave the same message to Republican governors in Arizona, in Florida, in Texas. They've done the same thing. The governor of Arizona rushed him to sign the new voter suppression law just an hour after it passed in Arizona this week. Ron DeSantis signed the voter suppression bill in Florida as a Fox and Friends exclusive. So what you have here is one of the most influential dark money groups in Republican circles writing voter suppression laws in to make it harder for black, brown, and young people to be able to vote. I mean, this is a really shocking development for democracy. Yeah, and one of the things that you see in this presentation is they are very focused. You have the states doing this, and now there's this federal legislation. There's, there's a there's HR one, that's one, um, or the For the People Act, which would be uh, a sort of baseline threshold of voting access, which is regularized across the country, as well as the campaign finance reform aspects, a bunch of other things. They have that, uh, Jessica Anderson, again, the woman that you saw there uh, who runs that Heritage Sister Network, a person you should know about who's doing a lot of work uh, that she would want you to know about. Um, she, she talks about killing HR1 and S1 as top priorities for them. She does. She says if they don't kill S1, we lose our republic, period. That's the language she used. But they have a two-pronged approach here. They're spending $24 million to make it harder to vote in eight battleground states, and they're trying to block the federal legislation that would make it easier to vote. And the, the fascinating thing here is that the, you have dark money funding and organizing voter suppression. That's the exact thing the For the People Act would stop. That's why the For the People Act has money in politics and voting rights combined. Because this is what we're seeing. We are seeing an attack on voting rights that's being organized and funded by millions and millions of dollars in dark money. So these issues are connected. The only way to fix our democracy is to look at these issues holistically. And that's why conservatives and Republicans are so terrified of the court of people. 
they know it'll fix our democracy in the very ways that they're trying to undermine it. Yeah, um, amazing reporting as always, Ari. Jessica Anderson, we kept our promise to you. We are not canceling you. We want everyone to know about the work you're doing. Thank you so much, Ari. Okay, pause right there. Uh, very quickly here, we look at this article from Mother Jones, uh, and that's being reported there from uh, Chris Hayes and Ari Berman. It says, to create this echo chamber, as Jessica Anderson put it, who you heard there in the clip, Heritage, uh, Heritage Act for America is spending $24 million over two years in eight battleground states, Arizona, Michigan, Michigan, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Nevada, Texas, and Wisconsin to pass and defend restrictive voting legislation. All right, uh, those watching on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel, keep watching. Uh, we're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. We're out of time here on Nats and AM, the Super Station, WSBF. Remember, right now, it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win Wakanda forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow night. Peace. All right, stand by, everybody. We're going to keep going for a few more minutes. How's everybody doing? All right. If you like this type of information, also, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App. Dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App. Also, through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show. PayPal.me forward slash the AHN Show. Or at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. This is us to keep broadcasting six days a week. Keep doing the research, stay on the air. Uh, you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturday, 12 noon at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Mahafa. Understand the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. So we deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. As soon as you register, you can start watching uh, class that we did this past Saturday. Uh, we do the classes live. You can watch us live, but they're all archives. We're about trying to get home at a certain time or anything like that. Or getting up uh, at a certain time, okay? They're all archived. Uh, we're going to post a link here, and it's also the homepage of our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And I taught this class in February and March of 2021. So those sessions are archived as well, so you have access to them uh, as well. You can watch from around the world, and I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have... Uh, Book references, articles, video clips, uh, everything. Okay. All right, I want to um, go to the next one here, uh, the next clip. So this is deep here with this video that's leaked from uh, Heritage Action for America. Anybody, so you have all these people saying, including African Americans who don't understand politics, who, 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 who say our vote doesn't matter. If the African-American vote does not matter, why are people working so hard to suppress our vote? The African-American vote does not matter. Why are they trying to pass 361 pieces of legislation in 47 state legislatures here in the district if our vote doesn't matter? Why is Heritage Action for America trying to spend $24 billion over two years in eight battleground states, Arizona, Michigan, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Nevada, Texas, and Wisconsin? They're targeting African-Americans. They're targeting uh, Hispanics. Latinos, etc. Well, if our vote didn't matter, why are they working so hard to suppress our vote? Now, every Tuesday, the group leads a, uh, a call with right-wing advocacy groups like the Susan B. Anthony List, uh, Tea Party Patriots, and Freedom Works to coordinate these efforts at the highest levels of the conservative movement. Well, we, we literally give marching orders for the week ahead, Jessica Anderson said, 
Michigan State Attorney General Jocelyn Benson was on 
um, the last word on Friday, uh, May 14th. Friday, May 14th, uh, Ali Belshi was sitting in for uh, Lauren McDonald. And Dr. Vincent, Dr. Vincent, State Attorney General, I mean, it, it, Dr. Vincent is the Secretary of State. And they talked about um, this uh, revelation uh, in this leaked audio. Okay, we're going to go to the clip here in just a minute. Then I want to squeeze in the uh, segment from Roland Martin Unfiltered from Friday, May 14th. I was a panelist on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Okay, how's everybody doing? Stand by. Let's go to this clip here. You know, naive me, I was asking you at one point about are these states just watching each other and picking up on, on some of the legislation that's being passed in places? Uh, and, and you definitely had a sense that this was uh, this was a little more organized than that. Yeah, and I think really a lot of what this week is not just the fact that it has been a national coordinated partisan effort. It's also well-funded. And it also explains the speed with which we've seen this, you know, manifestation of the big lie just transformed into really bad election policy in states all across the country that are going to do a, a lot to make it a lot more difficult for people to vote and really allow for more partisan interference in election counting and certification, which is not a good thing for our democracy. There are states uh, like Georgia uh, or Arizona where there are Republican uh, legislatures and Republican governors, and there are states like uh, Michigan where you've got a Democratic governor. Uh, the uh, Jessica Anderson, the executive director of uh, Heritage Action for America, addressed that matter as well in this video. Let's listen. Now, there are other states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. You don't have governor's offices there that are going to sign these bills. We're still going to move on. We're going to put the marker in the state legislatures of where the, what the states need to do to tackle their reforms and to get these laws done. And we're going to do it with an eye that all of this needs to be safe and secure by the time we're at 2022, and then keep that eye on the ball with HR1 and blocking that federal leg legislation. So on one hand, Secretary, I appreciate that they're saying the, uh, the, the quiet parts out loud, but there's a, a little bit of code in there, despite the fact that uh, she is saying what they intend to do. There's this code. We're going to do it with an eye that all of this needs to be safe and secure. This is a conversation you and I have had uh, very frequently, and that is that we don't have in any of these states a voter security problem that they are solving here. No, actually, the secure protocols that we have in place in Michigan and that are in place in states all around the country were, were tested and highly scrutinized in 2020. And they passed in flying colors. We saw the most secure elections in 2020 than we've seen in our state's history, in our country's history. It was also marked by high turnout. Uh, and I also found it on that note really compelling that in this report you mentioned uh, the goals of, of this effort were, quote-unquote, to right the wrongs of November. And really the, the, the defining characteristic of the November elections was that they were so highly secure accessible and that so many people participated and there was such high turnout. I don't see what's wrong with that. I think it's a great thing. And, and again, that really speaks to the per per pernicious nature of this effort to really undermine people's ability to participate and hold their elected officials accountable through the vote. 
So one of the reasons that we, we continue to have this conversation is because you've done a good amount of research into both the rules and the, the changes that are being proposed. When Heritage Action for America was confronted with this report, the response by the uh, executive director, Jessica Anderson, was that we are proud of our work at the national level and in states across this country to promote common sense reforms that make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. We've been transparent about our plans and public with the policy recommendations, and we won't be intimidated by the left's smear campaign and cancel culture. Uh, again, their rationale, if they were talking to the average American who's wondering about the motivation behind it, the rationale is that there's cheating and fraud um, that are underlying some of these decisions. And that, as you and I have discussed, in many cases across the country, the proposals being made to amend voting and the ability to do so don't actually deal with cheating and fraud anyway. That's right. They actually make it harder for people to get a ballot by eliminating the ability for people to send absentee ballot request forms. They make it harder to return a ballot by eliminating drop boxes or eliminating prepaid postage for folks wanting to vote by mail. They allow for partisan interference in elections, making it harder to, to safely and securely tabulate the vote. And in Michigan, there's a law that's actually to criminalize efforts by my office and local clerks to educate citizens about things as simple as where to find your polling place or how to register to vote. So there's nothing about these bills that make elections any more secure. But there's a whole lot of data that shows these policies will make it a lot more difficult for people to vote and participate in democracy. I'll come back tomorrow, a plea deal. says, uh, in response to a request for comment, Jessica Anderson said in a statement, we are proud of our work at the national level and in uh, states across the country to promote common sense reform that make it easier to vote harder to cheat. She's lying. Uh, it doesn't make it easier to vote. Okay. And when he talks about cheating, they don't talk about the fact that Donald Trump encouraged his voters in North Carolina to vote twice. They don't talk about that at all. We've been transparent about our plans and public uh, with our policy recommendations, and we won't be intimidated by the left smear campaign and cancel culture. Didn't you all just cancel uh, Liz Cheney as conference chair because she won't buy into the big lie? And she won't lie and say uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump? Didn't you all just cancel uh, Liz Cheney? So read the rest of this article here. Okay. Uh, leaked video dark money group uh, brags about writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. This is from MotherJones.com. All right, we'll post a link here on the screen. Now, uh, I want to go uh, quickly to this last piece. So I was on, uh, I was a panelist on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday, May uh, 14th. I'm a panelist on each Friday. And we discussed this crazy story. Uh, there was, in the, in the House of Representatives, there was a uh, House uh, oversight hearing dealing with the um, January 6th insurrection, okay? And there's a big article from, there's a big article from uh, NBC News about this as well. But uh, Republican, Republican loyal to uh, Trump claim Capitol riot looked more like uh, normal tourist conditions, which 
more like normal tourist season. And this was testimony, this, uh, this was uh, what uh, Representative Andrew Clyde, Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia said. Uh, he's a, he's a, a, a Trump loyalist, okay? He makes no sense. And you had uh, Republicans at this hearing, Republicans who are actually members of Congress at this hearing, who were trying to lie and say, oh, the insurrection really didn't take place. It really, this really was an insurrection. Um, and they're trying to tell a, a revisionist history. All right. So we talked about this on uh, Roland Martin and Filter on Friday, May 14th. Uh, multiple Republicans, let me look at this article here so I can actually see this. Multiple Republican members of Congress, multiple Republican members of Congress, uh, on Wednesday, uh, May 12th, offered a false retelling. Well, today, welcome to the African History Network show right here on Nancy and AM TV station, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, May 16, 2021, and we are live. So we have a jam packed show uh, for you today. You know, Friday, uh, May 14th, I was on Roller Martin Unfiltered. I mean, we were panelists on each Friday, so we had a short panel discussion, a shorter panel discussion. We were rolling with on rotation at this time. So we have an excerpt of what happened there. But also, uh, you know, past week, I did not get a chance to talk about uh, May 13th. May 13th, 1846, uh, the U.S. declared war against Mexico. And this began the Mexican-American War, okay, which started, uh, uh, the U.S. declared uh, war on Mexico May 13th, 1846. And this was over a territorial dispute. Know uh, the U.S. wanted to expand westward, and that territory was owned by uh, Mexico. All right, so we're going to you know, so all this history is connected. We're going to talk about this before. All this history is connected, and uh, we're going to talk uh, some about slavery and the Mexican American War of 1846. Slavery and the Mexican American War of 1846. It's a really, really deep history. Here, and this has a lot to do with the way things are today and some of the feelings that uh, Mexicans have against the U.S. Uh, because the Mexican-American War, it lasted two years, 1846 to 1848, and is also going to uh, bring about the expansion of slavery uh, westward uh, in this country. And it's also going to bring about the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 which went farther than the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. And then, then we know that you're going to have a civil war in 1861, but uh, you have the U.S. wanted to, you, you have Europeans in general want to take over the entire North American continent. And you're going to, uh, the, the Mexican-American War is going to end with what's known as the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1846. And, this, and in this treaty, the U.S. is going to give the territory that becomes California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada. Okay, they get all of this out of uh, the Treaty of uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo. So the 
to, to really, really deep um, history there. So we'll talk some about that. And then uh, on Friday's show, Friday, uh, May 14th, I talked about a story that was that Mother Jones wrote. And uh, they talked, uh, I saw a number of different articles dealing with this. But this deals with uh, a leaked video from a uh, dark money group. Uh, this is uh, Heritage, a- Heritage Action, which is a sister organization to the Heritage Foundation. But, uh, His uh, show is already over, but it's in a loop. So it started from the beginning. But um, we already heard all of his show. It was over two hours and over 23, 24, 25 minutes. Thank you for listening.